0: welcome everybody to another edition of why it matters uh hi i'm tracy kronzek and i'm joined here with my always stalwart companion co-agitator uh also boss tim locky <laughs> hey welcome to the show.
1: glad you could make it
0: we are incredibly excited for today's conversation. Uh, this represents as much of a down-home kind of feeling conversation to, I think, me personally as it does an, a completely new endeavor for, you know, what we've always assumed is true and false around our work in nonprofits and digital economies and impact. So without further ado, I want to turn it over to a longtime friend and mentor, Kevin Bromer, who is, I'm going to read your title right off the website, Executive Director, Head of Technology and Data Strategy at the Ballmer Group in Washington. Uh, Kevin, tell us a little bit about that and what you're doing right now.
2: Yeah, uh, absolutely. First of all, uh, uh, Tim, Tracy, thank you both so much for for having me. Really appreciate it. And uh, it is uh, an honor to continue to get uh, the opportunity to spend time with you both. i uh, really, really glad to do that. Um, but so, yeah, uh, it's a long title. Uh, so I try and always keep it short. So you just go like tech and data. Um, but yeah, the, the role uh, is really a, a new role at Ballmer Group. And Balmer Group, obviously, is really a relatively new organization as a whole. But my job... Uh, I really say is sort of um, uh, two things that I really do at Balmer Group. Uh, first and foremost is really my job is to help support our colleagues in the overall Balmer Group, uh, Group mission, uh, which is really focused on socioeconomic mobility for uh, underserved communities kind of throughout the greater United States and you know i do that by helping to make sure that my colleagues are making smart investments in technology and data projects both with local and state government as well within the nonprofit community uh, and really help to provide whatever level of expertise and guidance I can to those projects, uh, to those uh, program officers, to those executive directors who are my colleagues at Balmer Group. So that's kind of about fifty percent of the job is just sort of uh, giving a little bit of the uh, technology project sniff test, if you will. Right? This 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 seems about right. I'm not so sure these folks over here have any idea what they're talking about. Let's let's ask some more questions about this one, right? So that's about that's about half the job. Um, The other half of the job is really about, um, you know, my own set of investments around technology and data and how we as an organization sort of buttress and support the overall technology sector, both for those nonprofit organizations who are doing the really hard work on the ground and wherever relevant, you know, what we sort of colloquially think of as kind of B2C, right? And supportive issue areas that are directly impactful to citizens in the United States. Uh, and so things like uh, the digital divide uh, is a really a burgeoning area of work for us and not just connectivity or, and access, but affordability and digital skill building, sort of all three legs of the stool that, that you need to take somebody from a, a place of, uh, of not having those skills to being sort of a fully formed digital citizen in, uh, in this country in the modern age. Um, we also think a lot about benefits access as well around that. So how do we, you know, you you saw that in the course of the pandemic, everybody's old COBOL system sort of keeled over as yep. uh, unemployment insurance came came due for everybody, right? And we we pulled out all of the uh, all of the uh, folks with the long gray ponytails to come back and and re and remember their Fortran skills. And, um, uh, and so how do we how do we avoid that in the future, right? How do we make that easier and and give access to earned benefits for members of the community who haven't otherwise sort of, uh, wouldn't otherwise be able to have that level of access to that. Uh, And then of course the the final piece of that and within my own portfolio is thinking about the broader field of technology as a whole uh, and what can we do as a funder Uh, to help sort of buoy buoy that field uh, and build capacity within nonprofit organizations, build capacity within the nonprofit sector. Uh, Again, not just for the sake of building capacity, that's incredibly important, uh, but because those organizations are the ones that are really impacting lives on the ground in very significant ways. Uh, So it's a a dual mandate. Um, It's a dual job. And that's part of, frankly, for me, what makes it such a uh, exciting place to be because it's, you know, we're, like I said, we're a young organization still evolving, still changing, and it's a great time to be a a part of defining what we want that future uh, to look like and that mission to look like.
0: I'm going to follow up with two things on that, Kevin. One is you're not kidding when you say COBOL and FORTRAN, by the way, like I think you and I are the kind of people who speak in metaphor and like sometimes that's a metaphor for tech dinosaurs, but actually for a lot of state governed employment and state database systems, we're literally talking about COBOL and FORTRAN. Uh, But the question that I want to ask you to dig into more is you talked about obviously bridging the digital divide as a key component to the work that balmer group is trying to do and i feel like right before we hit record on this thing we had started with a we had started down the path of what are the factors that are contributing to that digital divide and and what are the actual remediations and i think you know, I've always personally said like, golly, if I could make $125,000 a year doing tech for a nonprofit, I'd never leave a nonprofit. But salary is one of the. So the question is, is what are the components that you're looking at that are more holistic than just a single dollar amount? And how are you measuring them? Or have you not gotten there yet?
2: Well, yeah, there, there, there's a lot there, right, and I, and I think you can think about the digital divide in a, in a lot of different ways, right? So, I mean, I think at a, at a basic level, you know, we sort of think about the, you know, the estimated 16.9 million kids who don't have regular access to, uh, to learning technology in the school, and that was pre-pandemic. Um, we'd like to think that number is getting a little bit better. The reality is, is is we don't know, right? Um, You know, as a a colleague put it, we've just spent the last year conducting the biggest experiment in digital connectivity across the United States in history, and we have no idea what worked. We, we've got anecdotal yeah. evidence, yeah. we might have regional evidence, or sort of can draw a circle around a community and say, this program we think was effective for this community, uh, but we really don't know all of the answers to that. And so I think that in and of itself, we're in a period of of discovery in terms of figuring out okay, we just, we just shot a whole bunch of bullets at this problem, right? We just tried a whole bunch of different things. What really landed? And then how do we as a philanthropic funder sort of put more weight behind that and make sure that we're really broadening that uh, effort and that opportunity to expand overall um, access? So that's like, the, that's like the individual sort of digital divide question. There's obviously a lot of other facets to that. And we could probably spend the next 45 minutes just talking about that. But there's also this question of you know, what I really think of as, as overall capacity building in the, in the nonprofit sector as a whole, which you could also refer to as a very significant digital divide, right? You walk into a lot of nonprofit organizations, uh, they're working off a you know, piece of paper and a pen, uh, which obviously I have in front of me as well, but I'm also looking at a computer and I'd like to think I know how to use one fairly well at this point, right? Um, and not a lot of folks have that necessarily in the, in the nonprofit space, and it's a it's a multifaceted problem. Uh, a lot of which has to do with access to technology, so software licenses, hardware, those kinds of things. Those are easily solvable problems, right? We know how to do that. Um, uh, a lot of vendors, uh, a lot of great organizations like a TechSoup, right, have really dedicated themselves to saying, "Hey, we're going to saw, sor- we're going to solve for the." you need seat licenses kind of problem, right? and And so really smart people um, within those kind you know organizations like uh, like N10 and others uh, have really dedicated their lives to that are doing phenomenal work around that. Uh, so we want to help support those efforts where we can, but great people sort of working on that already. Um, but there's sort of other issues there that are that are challenging. It's not just about putting the software in front of somebody and sort of like, hoping for the best, right? Um, You also have to take the time and energy uh, to make sure that the individual utilizing that software uh, Mm -hmm. has the skills and the capacity to be able to do that effectively and to execute on that effectively. And it's not detrimental to their day to day work, right? Uh, There's nothing worse than going and asking a $25,000 a year employee who's already working 10 hours a day just trying to do their best to say, hey, I need you to stay another 90 minutes later because we're going to learn this newfangled piece of software. Trust me, it'll make your life better probably sometime in the next couple of years. I don't know. We'll see, right? That's a really, really hard sell for that that person. And yet we ask folks to do that over and over and over and over again. So we have to figure out how to not only make The software available. We have to figure out how to make the training accessible and that digital skilling a core part of everybody's day to day. It's not an extra. It's not something you do off the side of your desk. It's a core part of your job is to be able to continue to evolve uh, and learn. Uh, But then we also have to incentivize people in the nonprofit sector to, to stay. Uh, and, and right now, that's a really big challenge in the sector, as we were discussing, right? The, the Bureau of Labor Statistics tells us pretty, pretty squarely and easily, like, if you're in the social sector, odds are you're one of the lowest tenured people in the entire economy, period, yep. bar none. Uh, and so, Across
1: all job functions, is that? Or yeah. is it specific job? How? Yeah, I I did not know. Yeah, yeah,
2: it's worth going to look at the data. The the BLS does does great uh, great work around this, and um, it's it's really uh, it's really stunning to see, quite quite frankly. And then we sit around as 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 funders uh, and as technology experts and go like, "Gosh, how? Two years later, how did that project go off the rails? I thought we really nailed that." And You'll go and you look at it's like, oh, well, the folks who were there who made all those decisions, they just simply aren't there anymore. They've gone on and they've moved on to the next thing and they've less, left the, the vestiges of the software project sort of uh, kind of on the ground um, uh, beside them. And so, um, you know, figuring out how we uh, as a sector um, incentivize uh, the retention of high quality people who want to impact their communities, who want to be there, who want to do that really great work. But also want to have a career and want to want to better their economic outcomes and their economic lives for themselves and for their family. Those two things shouldn't have to be attention. Uh, and yet, right now, where we are as a society, they they are. And and you know, it's it's easy to say, well, hey, you know, you're a funder. Why don't you just give everybody more money? Uh, and that's fair. Uh, I think that's a you know absolutely we should be thinking about that as a funder. But um, you know, the the nonprofit sector is like a you know, it's like a one point eight trillion dollar sector in revenue, right? Something like that in revenue. Is that like
0: yearly? That's the total addressable market, right? It's over uh, a trillion a year. Yeah, yeah.
2: That's the nonprofit revenues, right? So that's yeah. the money that's the money they're they're taking in. You know I don't, I know my funder, he's a, you know, wealthy gentleman, of course, but, but we, we can't eat 1.73 trillion dollars a year. Right. I mean, we can't, right. That's like, that's not, I mean, enough maybe
0: Rupert Murdoch can. can, but that's about it. Right.
2: Right. Right. So, yeah. so it's, it's, you know, and that's every year too. Right. I mean, yeah. I think that's the other, that's the other big point, right. It's not just, that's a, you know, that's a, a yearly number. So it's not just um, solving it for one year. Right. We, you know, plugging the digital divide for a year, right? Uh, making sure everybody has access to high quality broadband. Um, funders could plug it for a year. The question is, is what do you do next year? What, what does 2024 look like? How do you ensure that those programs are sustainable and you're fixing the problem and not just trying to, to solve a wound?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, the picture that comes to my mind is, you know, just because you put out a bird feeder Does it actually mean you're feeding birds or are you just giving more supplies to the squirrels? You know, (laughs) and that's that's kind (laughs) of, you know. (laughs) Gotta, That's kind
2: I, of the challenge, right? Know, like, and and I,
1: squirrel. I'm like so distracted by this. Like, I'm to out,
2: <laughs> I need to write down who the. I got yeah, to exactly the birds like, and the squirrels like, are what in does this. That
1: mean? <laughs> like that that is, I was blowing my mind. But <laughs> like, I, I
0: mean, so like, this is a phenomenon. Like, my background is in consulting, and this is a phenomenon I've seen for years. And we've known about this, you know. You're you're a consultant on the ground with an organization, and. If that project takes more than six months, you're not working with the same people who started it, period. And, you know, so what I like about what you're saying is that, you know, and, and to the point that I was making, you know, right before we hit record, and that is there's those of us who come from a purist background who will very easily point to just more money. Just more technology, just more time, just more whatever. And what I like in what you're saying is that it's saying, okay, yes, we do need these things, but don't fool yourself into believing that this is the only thing that's going to solve the problem because, you know, that trillion dollar discussion is exactly where it's at and and when it comes to the kinds of work that you're doing at balmer group you know there is a very like clear statement on the website about we want to advance racial equity now it's somebody who has a background in that and also even an earlier background in like queer activism i would also say there's a damn good argument to make for when i look at homeless statistics and see 40 to 60 percent of the homeless kids are LGBT identified, right? Like, so there's all of these things. How do you set priority or are you still in the process of setting priority and really understanding the totality of this kind of problem?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's a a really good question. So I think, first of all, you know, I think, as I mentioned, we're we're a young organization. And so, you know, a a lot of what's happening right now for us is, hey, let's keep doing the the good things that we want to do, right? And the good things that we believe are going to be uh, impactful and beneficial for the sector as a whole, uh, but also be constantly in this state of sort of reevaluation of, uh, or do we have the right set of priorities? Are we thinking about these things in the right way? Are we being uh, responsive and agile to the moment, but also continuing to stay strategic and long term, uh, kind of in our outlook and, and how we do that. So, um, you know, it's definitely that that constant internal conversation that, you know, to be quite frank, is fun. I mean, it's really interesting as somebody who um, has long sort of viewed myself as wanting to sit at sort of that that nexus of the nonprofit and the philanthropic and the technology sector as a whole, like how do we weave these things together well, um, talking about the priorities of a, of a funder from the inside uh, has been uh, just a, a, a fascinating and, and just frankly a, a humbling and rewarding experience for my part and, and you know obviously hopefully making some good choices for the or doing our best to make the right choices for the uh, for the sector as a whole certainly um, you know priorities uh, for us i mean you know i don't know that that we have sort of outside of that core mission statement um, uh, a, a concrete set of first this, then this, then this, then this, then this. We have preferred vehicles through which uh, we think are, uh, things are particularly effective. Um, we certainly have populations that we believe we can have an outsized impact and influence on. And, you know, uh, uh, underserved um, communities, particularly communities of color, uh, the data is really stark, really apparent, especially when you begin to look at sort of population level uh, statistics around what's happening in those communities. And and, and, uh, and the role that you can have as a philanthropist in really um, bending the outcomes in really positive ways for those communities, uh, I think is um. Uh, very much always at the front of our mind around that right very much how we how we kind of uh, think about and approach that work Um, the vehicle through which we do that as well I think is something that we have uh, uh, organizationally prioritized and and really thinking about um, kind of what we refer to as kind of the power of of place right this idea Mm -hmm. that um, you know nothing about us without us, right? If you think about some of those, you know, community data involvements, I'm sure you've heard that expression before, right? Uh, and that's a really powerful and, and meaningful uh, expression in my mind, because what it means is our job as a funder is not just to fund, you know, the, the, the large nationally scoped organizations, but it's to partner with place-based partnerships, either through networks or through individual community partnerships who can really look at um, a community and recognize that in order to address digital divide, we have to also address um, the early childhood education elements that are, you know, that are are putting kindergartners into kindergarten in that community without any exposure whatsoever to digital skills. And we have to look at uh, after-school programs that are providing support for elementary school students who have working parents and ensuring that they are properly funded. And we have to look at food programs and food insecurity in these communities, right? It's it's this recognition that um, community problems are not singly faceted and these things are uh, really irrevocably interlinked uh, and and can have, you can really create um, positive spiral effects, uh, positive knock-on effects when you begin to impact multiple places at a time.
1: Right. You were um, you're, you're talking about that and it made me think of a, a- an issue that's come up with a client that is a really great issue and, and, and challenging to think through. I don't know that we've talked about this, Kevin, but uh, about a year and a half ago, I looked back at the first decade of our work with Now It Matters, and I just did not feel confident that what we were doing is actually creating organizational change. Mm-hmm. And so uh, spent about six months just researching, how could we do this differently? came up with a different methodology for approaching, not implementing technology, but implementing change and then managing technology. Um, And so, you know, all of that to say, there's a theory of change we're pursuing. And, you know, uh, what we found though, is that we are seeing success at an organizational level. So first thing here is, when you're talking about uh, staff turnover, that isn't a problem everywhere in the organization because there are that organization has saturated in what it does. And so it isn't new. So if they've got a new program person that's coming in, it doesn't interrupt the programs because they have that defined as part of the organization. Technology has been such a set aside piece of what they do that it just hasn't been embodied by organizations. So we think that organizational change is at the center of this so that it doesn't just rest with one or two people that transition on. That said, we, you know, the one of the obvious places to start on this is fundraising and development, right? So, and we've been working with an organization that has really started to advance in this area. And it's putting pressure on the digital divide because the staff that are working in that area are now so much more efficient than the other staff that don't have that background in the platform that we're introducing for them. And so we've, we've ended up needing to hit pause for a minute to say, what do we do to make sure that program staff, some of whom don't have laptops or internet at home or even smartphones, and for whom we, there, there just needs to be a body of information here, just exactly what you're saying that needs to happen. And uh, before we start proceeding, um, the executive director's story on this, I thought was great, was like, if you have a flat tire, you stop the car and you fix it first. And right now we've got a flat tire because we are speeding down. Some of us are, are much faster than others. And he, he was sitting in on a training um, that we had hosted and he said, I know that there are a number of staff that don't know what we're talking about and don't feel comfortable saying so. And and it was just uh, at multiple turns, it just started to expose a lot of bias in the way that even now it matters implements and the way that technology is introduced. Um, And so I I think it's interesting, even if you start getting that right, actually what you're going to find is you may need to slow down even more.
2: Well, yeah. And, and you know, in a lot of ways, Tim, it sounds to me like the organization you're talking about is light years ahead of a lot of organizations because it seems like they have that executive buy-in in, hey, look, this is the direction I need to steer this organization. I know this is where we need to go. I'm having a hard time bringing everybody with me. I think far too often, and I know this has been your experience as well, uh, a lot of times that change either happens from bottom up uh, and then it becomes a, a contentious challenge. Um sort or- of a
0: revolution inside the organization itself with yeah. de- right. which totally derails mission delivery, by the way. Well,
2: it derails mission yeah, yeah. or worse, it becomes an unfunded mandate, right? Where you yes. have boards who went to the latest webinar and say, oh my gosh, why are we doing this? and and, you know, eds or development directors, you know, even if we're just talking purely about fundraising, who are saying going like, you we gotta like we gotta allocate capital for that. Go out and raise some more money for us, so we can do this. So then we can then go and raise more, right? And so there's a there's a, a not just a, a leadership that has to happen from an education perspective um, with the, within the organization itself, but you have to have a board who is dedicated and bought into that vision, and frankly willing to invest in what that future is going to look like. And I think far too often, um, you know, the, the best boards are excellent at this. There's lots of great examples of that, but far too often it's, it's uncommon in the space and you have EDs sort of having to post hoc justify uh, their their strategic technology investment. Yes, in
1: interesting you're saying that because what we found is that um, we need to, to stop thinking about when we do a diagnostic, the diagnostic is at least 50%, if not more, is this organization ready for the change we bring to it? And if it's not, we give them to an implementation partner that thinks technology only and we'll do a project because that will still move the needle, but we're not taking that work anymore because that's not what we want to focus on. We want to focus on deep organizational change that is possible with technology, but you're exactly right. It has to be that key leader with the board support and um, and 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 so you're right. They are light years ahead. It's an amazing organization.
2: Yeah, it's it's cultural, right? I mean, ultimately, but, you know, that, that that strong culture and expectation of operational excellence and what it takes to get there, and the kinds of investments that it takes to get there, sets an expectation for those line employees, and 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 what not only what they should do, but what they should get. Right? Yeah. Or, how they are supported, yeah, absolutely. how they are incentivized to do that work and, and uh, to continue to upskill. right? That all has to do with the kind of organization that it wants to be. Now, look, if, if I'm a member of a board or an ED, though, uh, I get the dynamics of looking at that scenario and going, I, I, can, I can put a whole lot of my precious revenue and divert my, my mission-focused revenue to upskilling my line employees. But if I do that, and that person leaves after eighteen months, because I can also only afford to pay them twenty-five thousand dollars a year, whew, that's a that's a that's a hard cost. It's a hard pill to swallow. This organizational right for that organizational leadership. And, and that's those-
0: feeding yeah. a squirrel, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier, that that was How? where we fed I the still squirrel. Don't get it. It. The, the bird happen. is that when is the they bird. stay. The bird is when they stay. Okay. We fed the bird when they stay. We fed the squirrel when they leave.
2: I want to work through this one after all. You know, the, yeah, the I think, bird I think leaves that, too.
0: No, the, the birds fly and anymore. sail. The squirrel just consumes your resources. Have you never watched a bird That's feeder?
1: That's what Tim? birds do too. Okay. Anyway, I I, I cannot <laughs> get over this.
0: <laughs> I have a question, Kevin. I actually have two. One is a small one, and one is a big one. the The small question is from your vantage point. Because you know, using Tim's example yeah. of this organization, which is a killer org, by the way, it's a real privilege to work with them. Um, what would you tell business partners who are responsible for implementing technology? It, it doesn't matter the platform. Like what I will say in 2020 is I don't care anymore if it's Salesforce, Dynamics, like NetSuite, I don't care. What I wanna know is, what are, where's our blindness as a community of implementation partners that we need to know that fits into the kind of work that you're trying to build over at Balmer Group?
2: Yeah. Well, I think there's I think there's a couple of things uh, that, uh, you know, and, and I don't think I mentioned at the top, and I'm sure many of your listeners probably know, I spent the last decade uh, prior to coming to Balmer Group at, at Salesforce. So, you know, I'm certainly familiar uh, with what it's like to be kind of on the inside on the on the uh, on the vendor end of things. Um, you know, I think there's probably a, a couple of, of things. One, um, first and foremost, is, you know, have a question that you're trying to answer or have a have a goal coming in that you're going to help that organization with. Right. In uh, and, and Microsoft, Salesforce, Social Solutions, Us, whoever, like for the most part, their salespeople do a really good job about this. Right. Yeah. But ultimately, Um, You know, you want to make sure that you're really transparent about, hey, look, by the time we're done with this project, you don't know the answer to this, and you're going to know the answer to this by the end of this project, right? Uh, In other words, you have to have a a tangible, um, short-term get. I think that's that's one. Um, I think the second piece is this recognition that um, if you're going to, and we'll just use fundraising as an example, since since that's what we're sort of talking about, if you're going to deploy a fundraising system into a, a, into a nonprofit organization, um, and you're going to say, okay, the development director needs to needs to really know how to use that, uh, and the development staff, you know, if they have staff, right, they're going to really need to know how to use that. I think far too often what we see was, you know, an ED saying, well, okay, just print out the report and put it on my desk, and that way I'll know what's going on, right? Um, and shock, shock, shock. Uh, a year later, that ED after the development director left is like scratching their head and going, I just don't see the value to any of this at all, right? And so, you know, th- this idea that we only train the users, the frontline users of software systems, I think is, um, I'm beginning to see more and more as a, as a, as a fallacy and as a mistake uh, on our part as a sector. We need to recognize that the consumers of this, board members, um, you know, executive directors, and CEOs, uh, you know, really the the decisioners across the organization, if you will, right, also need to have the capacity and skills to be able to take advantage of these systems. Otherwise, you're not going to get the long term buy in, you're not going to get the, um, the cultural changes in the organization that actually make these types of digital transformation projects sustainable long term.
0: You just called back to like ancient Tracy, where I would scream at funders at conferences with a with a literal microphone and say like, if if you as leaders and, and nonprofits and funders aren't considering technology the same way that you consider finance or legal compliance, you're failing everyone. Um, that didn't go ever so well when you're screaming at people with a microphone. By the way. Um, right.
2: And, and you, and of course, you know. You know, what the get is, right? You know, yeah. So, like, I get it, right? You know, fi- finance compliance, like, my organization goes out of business if I cannot, I can no longer serve my constituents. If I am, if my books are not right, if I'm not, you know, fully compliant with IRS guidelines and regulations on what it means to operate a nonprofit, right? Poof, I'm done. There's an existential yep. crisis there. Right harder with digital transformation projects is that part of why leading with the intrinsic value to the organization and helping them understand, hey, look, this, this isn't just checking the box of, I had an old software system, now I have a new software, or I had no software system, and now I have a new software system. It's, it's the so what of that, that we need to do a better job as a, as a technology sector, I think, in, in answering.
0: Kevin, there is a big question here um, connected to all of the sort of high-level goals that you've said, and and it and it is embedded in the word equity. Um, I I'm a big believer in owning my feelings these day and ages, and you know, and Tim will tell you this. I am terrified to be an American right now, and it is centered on that word equity, and. What I want to know is, as you are literally pressing that button in both a verbal and actionable way that's putting dollars and capacity behind it at Balmer Group, what's your hypothesis on how this work can and should continue in an increasingly nationalistic atmosphere? Um. And an increasingly, in an America where there are two Americas, one that understands that word and one that wholesale rejects it, mm-hmm. um, even if the output benefits them. And that's yeah. been a phenomenon that's been studied for a long time. Yeah. How, how do you contextualize the work? Have you seen this? Have you run into this? Or is it a bridge you haven't yet crossed at Ballmer Group? <laughs>
2: Yeah, you know, um, uh, certainly a little bit, um, you know, and we, we're not a political organization. Uh, we, um, are very, um, uh, aware uh, of the voice that we have and very aware that there are perspectives on, on all sides of the aisle uh, as an organization. Um, and so we want to fully kind of acknowledge that. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, there used to be the old expression, right? All politics is local. Uh, and, And it's funny, right? Because I think what we've seen over the course of the last really probably more than four years, probably about 12 years or so, is that that's increasingly not true, right? That that in fact, increasingly politics um, is a national game, right? Um, However, the challenges that communities face uh, and the concerns of members of any given community are always local. Right. Um, If I if I live in uh, if I live in Detroit, uh, my politics might be national, but what I'm concerned about is my neighborhood. I'm concerned about uh, my community. I'm concerned about the economy of the city around me. Uh, and yes, obviously, uh, I want to go and I'm going to vote for whoever, whoever I'm going to vote for, and I'm going to care about whatever big political issue I want to care about. That's first and foremost to me. But But the issues that affect my life on a day-to-day basis are not universally, but for the most part. Um, are very much uh, local issues around that. Um, and so for us, uh, w- you know, what we really uh, think about is empowering communities uh, agnostic to sort of whatever is happening at that national scale because it is that local empowerment that actually improves the outcomes and, and lives of individuals on the ground. You can't ignore the national scale, right? If you want to, if you want to allocate Federal CARES Act dollars to underserved uh, elementary schools for purposes of providing device lending and connectivity, which we, you know, we definitely advocated for over the course of the last year, right? Or I certainly advocate for over the course of the last year, um, you need to have the federal dollars there in the first place. And in order to do that, you need to have a certain kind of government in place that wants to, you know, sub- to pass a, a CARES Act bill type of funding around that. Uh, so it's not to say that you can be completely divorced from what is happening at a national scale or what's happening at the federal government level or the state government level, but this recognition that the change that you want to see happen is still sort of agnostic to that, able to be empowered on the ground in local community, even if all politics are not local, all change, I would argue, at least has to start at a local level, Uh, and um, that's kind of how we, at least how I think about it. I I don't want to speak for all of my colleagues, but um, certainly how I think about it.
0: Yeah, I mean that makes sense. I, 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 you know, to Tim's story about working with a client, I also was working with a client here, a different one, and all they're trying to do is literally replace clunker cars with more fuel efficient, less polluting vehicles, and you know they've had to also consider the nationalization of politics in their work now because you know, they're going to work equally in rural red states as they are deep blue inner cities. And, you know, I like that analysis. I just, you know, I am going to be fascinated to see how much a very polarized country comes up in these conversations, right? Because God, you know, I don't know what else to say, right? Like, I I don't know what else to do other than to just try and do good work where you can. But at yeah. the same time, like, the the word equity is becoming akin to socialism, which is just a weird phenomenon. Anyway, because I'm like, when did this turn into the McCarthy era? Right? <laughs> so.
2: Yeah, and and you know, and I think for for us as an organization, you know. I think people very quickly get get into their political corners, right, and and, and understandably so. And, and I certainly have uh, my own political corner that I would uh, that I would assign myself to. Um, um, you know, ultimately, though, um, you know, this is all this is all fifty two forty eight country, a fifty one forty nine country, uh, and you want to have impact, a positive impact on people's lives. Uh, agnostic to their politics, agnostic to their national. Yeah, politics. that's right. And so, that's right. in order to do that, um, you have to acknowledge everybody's right to an opinion, even if you think it sucks. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, especially as a as a as a funder, uh, it is critical uh, for us to 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 maintain the focus on uh, on you know this idea of equity. Absolutely. Uh, which I don't think should be a controversial uh, topic. This, you know, equality under the law is good. Equality of outcomes is not necessarily what we want, right? Um, Right, exactly. But equality of opportunity. And equity in opportunity and understanding that, uh, you know, me who uh, grew up in a, a, you know, it was very middle class, it wasn't affluent by any stretch, but a middle class sort of suburb, right? Then I had a, an 8086 uh, at home in 1986, right? When I was six or seven years old, right? Uh, and, and that opened doors for me, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, later on in my life. Uh, that was absolutely a result of that middle-class privilege of having a computer on my desk in in the 80s. Um, And, you know, that opportunity is far too often not afforded to equally or more talented individuals uh, out there in a lot of these places. And, you know, I can't say that, uh, you know, Sue or Joe or, or whomever, right, uh, is going to end up in uh, the same place that I'm at or that you guys are at or that anybody else is at who has had a, a professional career, uh, right? Uh, I can't say that they're going to end up there, but they should have an opportunity to. They should have the same chance to do that that I did, uh, and they might make different life choices for different reasons, right, but that equality of opportunity, that equal access to technology, that equal access to that opportunity, uh, that's, I mean, that's the American dream, right? I mean, that's the, that is the, the, the whole point of um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, free market capitalism, I guess, if you will, in a way, right? I know that's going to be a little bit of a dirty word, uh, but, but it is predicated on this idea uh, that everybody gets to be an equal participant in that market, and we've got a job to do to make sure that that happens still.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Like this is in some way a discussion of what do bootstraps actually look like, mm-hmm. right? Because that is the American dream. And and you're right, like, same experience. I had an Apple II C that I was hammering on, learning, you know, the now defunct and utterly useless but still interesting ProDOS. Uh-huh. You know, like I'm like, great, like I learned ProDOS, but what that actually did was diminish my fear of jumping into technology. And I think when I look at the struggles of, you know, some of the people who are my age and older, you know, there is that fear because not all of us grew up with a computer. So now it's like, oh my God, my iPhone is just killing me. And I'm like, why is this killing you? This should be like a personalized, like, you know, door delivery thing. And then you translate that to, younger folks who don't have that opportunity from the get go to get over that hurdle of i can think this through the the digital divide has become exacerbated because of that absence of opportunity and you know i like the idea that you know this is a patriotic message sorry i know it's weird but i've been thinking in terms like this lately because i'm right. like how do we appeal to an innate sense of unity and patriotism and not like just get caught up in the whole sort of weird nationalistic discourse that's happening right now.
2: Yeah. So. yeah. And, and I'll tell you that, that my general perception has been that, that there's, I don't want to say universal agreement around that idea, uh, but there is uh, certainly, uh, I don't know, cultural bipartisan support for this idea that everybody should have an equal shot at the American dream, right. Such as it is. Uh, and you know, it, it's not just about, hey, I got to learn on the computer at that age. It's it's the cultural context that comes with that. Um, you know, uh, uh, just a, a, an anecdote. I had an opportunity during my my interview process to interview one-on-one with with Steve Ballmer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, while I don't think this is necessarily what led to him leading me, you know, making me an offer to, to come and join the Ballmer Group, um, you know, I was able to say to him, hey, I, you know, Steve, I remember growing up, I had this, um, we had these three books that came with the computer and one was beige, that was the DOS book. There was a maroon one, that was the basic book. And then there was the uh, operating, uh, the um, uh, the BIOS book, which was, I think gray, if I'm not mistaken. And he yep. just laughed, he said, oh my God, I can't believe you remember that, right? And it's like, it's like again, it's not just that I knew how to use a computer, it's that you have a cultural context and the grounding that allows you to easily move in those spaces in ways yep. like without that background is much more challenged to be able to do and it's it's, it's um uh such a, a smoother path in a lot of ways uh for somebody like myself and and you can either be the kind of person who says like i'm on top like uh, you know i win right and and suck at all you people down there right um or or what you're gonna say is like Wow, I had a lot of opportunity. I was given a lot of advantages to get where I've been able to get. And, I, you know, uh, and I've had a, a a successful career and I've got a great family and a great life. Like how do I turn around and try and figure out how to help other people do that and give other people access to that same opportunity that I had? Yeah, not end up with that's the same right. That Some of them are going to end up doing way better than I did. Some are going to end up doing way worse, but they're going to have the same opportunity. And and that's just, um, uh, uh, you know, that that to me is... Is the ongoing sort of uh, uh, it's just a, a, a waste of the of the the nation's talents, if nothing else, right? Like not to mention just people's lives. Like it, it's. Uh, um, yeah.
0: It's yeah. funny because so much yeah. of that cultural context, you know, it's like that's why I try to like remove sports ball references in my talk. You know, if anything, I'll turn it into Quidditch or something stupid because it points out the asininity of those things in the first place as a unifying factor between people. Yes. Um, or
1: birds and yeah. squirrels, for example. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, that thing is going to work. That metaphor is going to work. I'm going to make yeah, it yeah,
1: work. It's better. It's better. So, okay, um, what, one interesting piece in all of this. So I do live in a very red state. Now I live in a blue island of Bozeman in the red state of Montana.
0: Very blue island, very red state. <laughs>
1: yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that one of the reasons I got so drawn to SDGs mm. is because I feel like it cuts through a lot of BS to just be like, I don't, I don't care what you're doing in your off hours or what you think like that doesn't matter what, like on these 17 things, can we just agree? Like they're generally the right direction and it just cuts through a lot of that. And, you know, maybe you start arguing at the framework level about how you go about that, which is where like, you're going to hit a lot of snags and you should, these are important things.
2: Yeah.
1: I, I just feel like the, the power of impact metrics is that, you can actually get symbolic agreement, and then the problem with them is that those of us that work with the with nonprofits know enough to not trust the data, which <laughs> takes all of the power out of the symbol and turns them into pure marketing. Yeah. Um, and so, Kevin, I, I just think, as you were saying, you know, all politics is local. It 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 made me think all data is local, <laughs> and the issue with impact metrics. And this is what I love about what you're doing. The issue with impact metrics is that until you can get data, like small data working, you can't get big data working and impact metrics are kind of the mother of all big data. Um, I'm curious if that stuff that you work with or you know, do you, is, is that on your mind as you're doing this work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we sort of jokingly talk about sort of like Maslow's hierarchy of data, right? Like, how do you? Where do you- <laughs> that's uh,
0: great. That, that is great.
1: Yeah, yeah. like. It, it, okay,
2: that's better
0: than birds and belonging.
1: squirrels. <laughs> like, do I belong to the squirrels or the <laughs> birds? You know. Okay, I'm done.
2: Uh, so the way you know the way that we the way that we sort of think about this is you know how do you help organizations take baby steps in order to be able to sort of measure their impact in, in really real well ways and and I think the, the the most obvious and first way that you can do that is really kind of at what we think about as sort of population health right so there's a lot of you know the census pours millions of dollars uh, into every year tens of millions of dollars right I haven't looked at the latest census budgets right and basically says um, Okay, we'd be able to tell you down to a census tract level how uh, individuals in this community in aggregate are doing on a variety of different metrics and we're going to slice and dice this by age, we're going to slice and dice this by uh, race and ethnicity, we're going to slice and dice this by income level, you can get really phenomenal data but it is in aggregate. Uh, and it gives you not a question. It doesn't tell you if your nonprofit's being effective. It can give you correlation, yeah. but not causation, right? Yep. It's like
0: 8-bit um, resolution in like a 64-bit world.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well put. I like that. One. That's good too. Uh, and so and so a lot of what we do, uh, at least initially with, with places, is say, look, at a baseline level, can you look at this? And can you analyze a population level health data set about your community and say something intelligent about it and go to policymakers and go to your local government and go to your state government and say, look at what is happening in my community. We need this. Here's the data to prove it. Right. Like that is that's step one. That's the that's the crawl part. Right. We got to get to that level. Step two, in my mind, is really about uh, what we would call sort of program data or or organizational efficiency data, right? How well are we operating as an organization? How many people are we impacting? Uh, Who are they? Um, And here's where you can, can really begin to not only uh, collect data for the purposes of improving how you run your programs in an organization, but you can begin to think about how those uh, how those impacts are correlating back to uh, that population level health a little more cleanly and clearly, right? Um, and so that's kind of like the 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 you know you got the crawl, that's the walk. Well, so what's the run, right? Well, the run, the run is this this uh, this data utopia that you that you think you're sort of alluding to there, Tim, in a lot of ways, right? Which is okay. I've got constituent records about the individuals who I am serving. I know uh, that Tracy uh, is participating in after Stool programs on Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, and that since she started, uh, you know, six months ago, uh, her GPA. Has has steadily increased over that time. I don't know if it's because of that, but it certainly seems to be helping. Maybe we can look at other right, you be really begin to say something intelligent. And you know, as you think about how you scaffold that data back up and how that begins to Accurately reflect those high-level metrics that you're talking about, Tim. The SDGs, uh, you know, those other types of um, uh, of outcome uh, or measurement and evaluation types of um, impact metrics, right? or outcome metrics. Um, that's that's the that's the gold right there, right? Like when when that data can truly begin to scaffold, and you can really start to say very intelligent things about the. Impact of your programs on individuals' lives and how that is changing their longer-term outcomes. But those are uh, those are causative and correlative challenges. Those are longitudinal data tracking challenges. Uh, those are uh, baseline and comparative challenges. Right. That there's a lot of a glue that holds all of that together. Uh, that uh, you know, not every organization has, but we want to try and help them get there.
0: It's also community organizing challenges.
2: Absolutely, yeah, and, yeah. And you, you have to, uh, you have to, absolutely have to in this day and age, ensure that the community has the, the, the trust uh, and the efficacy and the control over that data as well, right? Nothing about us without us. And that is uh, absolutely the, the, the case. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do that. Like, we could spend 45 minutes talking about the value of like decentralized trust in the blockchain and, you know, like all that kind of nonsense um but uh but it's true right that 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 community has to feel efficacy in the work that you're doing um otherwise uh you're patronizing right and And you're leaving people behind we
0: are at the end of our time kevin Parting thoughts. What's been unarticulated in your mind that, you know, I mean, I, I, maybe that's probably too big of a question, but articulated my you know.
2: like 98% of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm like, wait, we got to refine this just a little bit. What is the, uh, any other messages that we, you want to get out there regarding, you know, this work and, and, and honestly, the interconnectivity of it all, which this is really a great discussion about why we all latch onto one thing and think it's a solution, but there's many more things that need to be bolted on. So.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, you know. absolutely. You know, like, you know, in my time at Salesforce, I, I probably at you know especially early on had this sort of myopic belief that hey look uh it was the field of dreams approach right if we build it great things will happen around it and and I think, to be honest with you, I don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily. My job at that time was to build the best piece of software that we could possibly build. And, and that was that was what I needed to sort of focus on in order to be effective in that role. But I think at some point, you sort of start to drink your own Kool-Aid around that and think like, well, we'll just keep throwing a good thing out there. And eventually, it's going to like some, some good stuff is going to happen, right? Um what you said, Tracy, I think is exactly right. It, it is a it is a systemic challenge that is impacting multiple sectors. It cannot just be philanthropy. It can't just be local government. It can't just be state and federal actors that come in to support these communities. It can't be tech vendors. It can't be uh, system implementers. It can't be ISBs. It can't be uh, you know big five consultancies. Right. It's got to be. It's got to be everybody, and everybody recognizing that while we're all coming with this, uh, coming at this from a very different perspective, everybody has a really critical um, uh, a voice uh, in the right way to sort of solve for this. Um, I think the thing that really has struck me most is you know, You sit inside of a tech vendor and you, and you, you survey the world around you and you're, you're talking to these organizations and they're saying like, "Well, look, this is, what, this is the budget that I have. There, there's nothing more I can do. And you sort of go like, gosh, why don't these funders just fund this properly? So it's, And, yeah. um, and you, you remove yourself from that and you get a little bit of perspective and you have an opportunity to sit in somebody else's shoes uh, for an extended period of time. And you you begin to recognize that uh, it's not just funders needing to fund more. We do. Uh, But it's um, implementers needing to recognize that you can't have a nine-month engagement and be done. And it's tech vendors recognizing that, hey, we just can't catapult software over the wall at somebody and expect it's just going to do a net good uh, in society. Uh, It's boards recognizing that these are long-term systemic and cultural changes that need to happen. It's Government recognizing that we need to figure out how to buttress uh, the uh, the nonprofit sector as a whole, particularly uh, if uh, we're not going to view government as a vehicle uh, for uh, supporting those communities. Uh, I, it's all of it, and that makes it both, I think, incredibly challenging, um, but uh, but also incredibly uh, incredibly exciting um, and a fascinating place to be. in and and uh, you know uh, just me feel privileged to have an opportunity to spend my career working on this as somebody that's
1: benefited uh for years from the work that you've done um at Salesforce and know that the work you're doing here is going to produce results I just want to say thanks um you know uh it it, you you really have continued to make a difference and uh, I'm glad for you to come on and share some of your story today. So thanks uh, for taking the time.
2: My pleasure, Tim, and I'm, I'm, I'm humbled by that statement because um, I think as you well know and have heard me say many times, there's a lot of really brilliant people that surrounded me at Salesforce uh, that made me look better than I was. Uh, and I think that's true here at Balmer Group as well. Uh, and I suspect that's true in a lot of places, but, but thank you and all kudos uh, to all the folks, uh, both at Salesforce, uh, at uh, obviously my colleagues at Balmer Group, but if you're at Microsoft or BlackBot or Social Solutions or you're at uh, Now It Matters or you're at Bigger Boat or anywhere else, like kudos to you as well, uh, because uh, it takes everybody.
0: It's a great way to end it. Thank you. Yes,
2: yeah. Awesome.
0: I'm Tim Lockie. I'm Tracy Kronzak, and you've been listening to Why It Matters.
1: White Matters is a thought leadership project of Now It Matters, a strategic services firm offering advising and guiding to nonprofit and social impact organizations.
0: If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, check out our playlists, and visit us at nowitmatters.com to learn more about us.